not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. And as I record this, we are headed into fall, which means that Thanksgiving and Christmas, New Year, There's a whole bunch of stuff ahead of us, and it is the perfect time for you to be picking up a copy of the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide if you haven't already got one. It covers topics like managing your expectations during the holiday season, how to handle invites, family gatherings, hosting an event, work obligations, socializing, and also has a section in each chapter with notes and suggestions for friends and family of how they can be of help to you at different holiday events and why things might be hard for you. It was actually a finalist in the National Indie Author Awards, and I'm really proud of that. And uh, it's got great reviews, so you can find it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Again, the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide while you're there. You can also grab a copy of the poetry book, The Ember Ever There, because it is my thoughts on recovery in poetry form, which is kind of a, a nice thing to meditate on as you're starting your day. So I hope you'll look into both of those. So that's where I tell my stories on my blog and in my books, and I hold space for your stories here. Well, many of those stories that we hear on the Bubble Hour include comorbidities, eating disorders, process addictions, such as shopping or gambling or sex. And these are sometimes called fellow travelers of alcohol use disorder because they can be symptoms of the same underlying issues. Today, we're going to take a closer look at eating disorders and their link to alcohol use disorder. And I'm going to give you a trigger warning here because we're talking about some things we don't usually talk about on the bubble hour, and I don't want to catch you unaware. So please be warned that if you think that this discussion about eating disorders might be hard for you to listen to, either skip past the parts that bother you or make sure that you are taking care of yourself and um, having some resources on hand as you listen to this discussion. Now, my guest today is Dr. Heidi Delzell, a clinical psychologist with over 25 years of experience in specializing with addictive behaviors, eating disorders, and trauma. Dr. Delzell has a busy private practice and also offers courses in online coaching. She's a prolific writer on subjects such as addiction, eating disorders, gender identity, mindfulness, racial justice, and spirituality, and has spoken nationally and internationally on these topics. Please enjoy my discussion with Dr. Heidi Delzell. So, Dr. Heidi Delzell, you've asked me to call you Heidi. So, hi, Heidi, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being here and sharing your expertise today. I'm really looking forward to learning from you and to gaining some insight 
on the way that these things work together and and why that is. So thank you for being here. I'm going to ask you to just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your story. Sure. Now, I'm a clinical psychologist, as you mentioned, but like many other psychologists, I've been there. And my recovery story concerns recovery from an eating disorder. Um, Like many of the men and women that I work with, it was more than one eating disorder, which I'll get into in just a moment. Um, But for me, I feel like I really have to go all the way back to when I was two years old, because that's when I suffered an early trauma, which was being involved in a vehicle accident in which my mother was killed. Um, It was really tragic, really overwhelming for my family. And as you can imagine, my whole family experienced a lot of trauma subsequently. My dad was really young, really overwhelmed. We moved in with my grandparents. So there was a lot of change and a lot of loss. And that led to a lot of dysfunction. Um, In my family, I definitely saw norms like don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And I also learned that the best way to soothe my emotions was by using food. Um, And when you have a family with lots of secrets, lots of trauma, there's lots of food to be had and lots of emotions to be soothed. This continued for me for many years. Um, I really learned that food is a substance that numbs, it comforts, it makes everything feel better. Uh, What happened was one trauma led to another and another, which I know many listeners can connect with, and I became extremely overweight and became a victim of some pretty severe bullying. Um, It wasn't until college that I found what really felt like an answer, and that answer was anorexia. Um, Anorexia helped me lose lots of weight. And I also found out that restricting food is an equally good way to numb out. At that time, which was, you know, more than 30 years ago, there wasn't a lot of treatment for eating disorders. A lot of it was medical. And so, you know, I went through some medical stabilization, but it really wasn't until years later. And honestly, even today that I worked on all the traumas that were connected and underlying the eating disorder. And I decided I had to do that work in order to become a specialist in working with women. Um, Right now, I specialize in working with women with eating disorders, with trauma, with alcohol use disorder. And I found that there are so many interconnections that I thought that it would just be a, a lot of fun to talk with Eugene, but also really helpful to listeners to talk about why these kinds of things coexist together so often. Um, one of my inspirations for doing this is a client whose name I'm changing, uh, but who gave me permission to share little pieces of her story. I'll call her Gina. And her history almost completely mirrored my own. Only when she came to me, instead of struggling with an eating disorder, initially she was struggling with alcohol. Once the alcohol became more manageable for her, she she returned to binging and purging behaviors that she hadn't used in many, many years. It was a vicious cycle. And so I really started to learn a lot about the interconnections of these disorders and to help other women and men as well who struggle. I am taking tons of notes as you're speaking. <laughs> Because I already have questions. (laughs) But I want to start just by getting clear 
on the definition of eating disorders, because I think there's a lot of us who have had symptoms uh, or behaviors that definitely fit into what we think of as eating disorders. And I just, I want you to clarify for us what that means and when we know whether we're symptomatic or if it's a habit or if it's a disorder. How do we define that? Well, you know, there's so much, so much diet culture that we're all exposed to. And I think everybody at one point in their lifetime has been on a diet of some kind. So yes, that the thoughts about, I want to lose weight are pretty common and really pretty normal. When I'm referencing eating disorders, really what I'm looking at are much more severe behaviors and much more severe symptoms. So there are, you know, lots of misconceptions. I think when people think about eating disorders, that image that often pops into their mind is of a young, restrictor, uh, restrictive eating, teenage girl. Um, Usually that young girl is white, uh, maybe middle class. That's not at all what eating disorders look like. Um, Eating disorders affect men, they affect women, they affect uh, people of all races, of all ethnicities, of all socioeconomic standards. Um, And eating disorders include anorexia, which is restricting food intake. It includes binge eating, um, in which the person eats large quantities of food, and it includes bulimia. Um, That's very similar to binge eating, only there's also a compensatory behavior attached to it, meaning the person compensates for the calories that they take in by vomiting or through compulsive exercise. Now, like myself, most people usually come to me with characteristics of all of these things, or they've struggled with different disorders at different times in their lives. Or, as you're alluding to, they struggle with more subclinical disorders or traits of the different eating disorders. So I'm, I want to talk a little bit about the source of some of that, what's underneath it. Because when I think of times in my life when these things have raised their head, um, extreme restriction and extreme weight loss for me, I would say, was mm-hmm. correlated with a time of need for control and a need for perfectionism (laughs) and experiences Mm -hmm. with more of the bulimia, the binging and purging aspect that happened at other times in my life, I would say was more associated with shame. I've never done any professional work around these. That's just my own observation with things that I experienced. Is that typical? What's the typical pattern? Well, I think that's a great observation. So Um, there is no one answer. So just the same way as you experience it and you link your eating disorder symptoms to different functions, most people do as well. So usually when I'm looking at an eating disorder, I'm looking at the person's uh, personality style. I'm looking at the function that the addiction or eating disorder serves. And then last but not least, I'm looking for any traumatic foundations of the eating disorder. Most women who come to me, especially with a combination of alcohol use disorder and an eating disorder, those comorbidities, they typically do have some sort of trauma history. So those are the linkages that I see, and I'm happy to expand upon any and all of those things. Oh, please do. 
keep talking. (laughs) So interesting. Great. Well, how about if I start out, you know, I know that there are listeners out there. I always get questions afterwards, after I talk at, you know, talks and presentations, people sometimes want a little bit of hard data. So I'm going to go ahead and give that to you. And, um, you know, according to some of the research, about 50% of people with an eating disorder are also concurrently abusing drugs and or alcohol. That is a pretty staggering number when you look at it. Um, When I look at treatment center statistics, for example, uh, they're a little bit different. So these are people who are actually entering treatment or entering hospital treatment for an eating disorder. We see about 25% of those people struggling with a comorbid alcohol use disorder or other addictive behavior. And we know that people, that substance abuse by people with eating disorders occurs at a rate of about five times greater greater than what's found in the general population. Um, so when you really look at those numbers, it affects a lot, a lot of people. And I think on the surface, the disorders appear to be pretty different. Like you're saying, you know, there's mechanisms of control, uh, perhaps with anorexia, but maybe more dis- disinhibition with something like alcohol use or bulimia. But there are similarities, as I'd mentioned, um, definitely the root causes of the illnesses, the ways that they help people to cope, the pain that they cause, and then also some of the brain uh, uh, connections to how the brain works. So alcohol and eating disorder behaviors affect the brain in the same areas and have a similar mood-altering effect. So all of those things are things that I see that are commonalities between the disorders. You know, what strikes me as you say that is that they're both coping mechanisms mm-hmm. and people feel shame about them or feel like there's something wrong with me. But the fact is, it's just a human behavior that's designed to help cope with something that is causing oh, us pain, yeah. right? Exactly. And especially when you consider, you know, a story like mine or a story like Gina's, you know, when we come from a family in which we can't necessarily express our feelings, we need some way to cope. And so certainly food can be a wonderful way to cope, although a very maladaptive way to cope. Um, But it does bring people a lot of shame attached to the use of many of these behaviors. Um, So, you know, I think that some of the feelings that I see people, that some of the things that I see people using it for are numbing, escape. Um, Sometimes people use it to kind of sedate themselves. So there's lots of different reasons that people have eating disorders in addition to that need to control their lives, which you've already mentioned. And numbing, escape, those are the reasons why we reach for a drink as well or drugs. Exactly. I mean, it really is to, to try to get through a moment or develop a pattern that lets us that lets us cope. Now what what a lot of people talk about experiencing is that when they quit one of their maladaptive coping strategies, the other ones mm-hmm. be, pop up. So um you know someone who might have uh had some symptoms of an eating disorder that hasn't bothered them since their high school or college years, but because that that's because their main coping mechanism has been alcohol use. And when they quit drinking, 
oh my gosh, that old eating pattern resurfaces. Have you seen that in your practice? And how do you address that? And I guess my question that goes with that is, do we treat things simultaneously or one at a time? Or how do we look at that? That is is such a great question. Um, The answer to the first question, which is, do I I see that happen, that people get into recovery and then those old symptoms reoccur or even occur for the first time? I see that all the time. So for some women and some men that I treat, it's occurring simultaneously, but probably the more common story that I see is that someone has gone into treatment. Um, most typically, it might be treatment for an alcohol use disorder. They get into recovery. Let's say you know they have uh, a month under their belt of sobriety, and then that old eating disorder behavior comes back. And like you said, it's because you know here they are. The pain is still there. What underlies it is still there, and they need a way to cope. And so they go back to those other behaviors that have helped them to cope. Um, other people, other people, it's just occurring the entire time throughout, you know, throughout their treatment history. So I see both pictures and yes, um, simultaneous treatment when we can find it is the best. It's very, very difficult to find that. I would have to say, too, that as we learn new coping strategies or identify and work on healing the trauma, then we, we need those coping strategies less. So is the, is the real cure, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> to focus on either the core trauma or the core, what's behind uh, the, the disorder, what's causing the discomfort in the first place? So some people, when we talk about trauma, they'll say, I don't have any, tra-. like, I can't, I can't pinpoint any trauma. So it's pretty hard to deal with something that I don't know what it is. And mm-hmm. sometimes I talk about having experienced a thousand emotional paper cuts that, you know, nothing huge that I could put my finger on, but boy, all of these little things that just kept nudging me off course. But generally I feel like as I dealt with those over the years, everything seemed to come easier because I didn't need to reach for those coping strategies anymore. Yeah. It's like, it's like going right to the foundation. What, uh, what is, what is that root cause of what's going on and working on that? And I know we're talking a lot about coping skills, but I also want to put in a plug for, you know, it goes by different names. I guess I'll just use the DBT name, the dialectical behavior therapy name, which is distress tolerance. But basically what it means is being able to feel emotions and not needing to numb out, being able to actually sit with emotions. So, you know, coping skills are wonderful. We need them as tools. We need them as tools, especially in early recovery. But there's an equal amount to be said for feeling the pain and not needing to do anything to make it go away. Ah, okay. That's a really important distinction, isn't it? Yeah. So instead of coping with the pain, which is finding ways to distract ourselves or stop it, uh, to learn to turn and base it and deal with it. Is that, does that capture the difference? 
Totally. That totally captures it. And as you and I are talking about it, you know, people who have been in recovery, we make it sound really easy. (laughs) It is probably the hardest thing. And so, you know, we talk about riding the wave, you know, so that wave of emotion has come on and knowing that we can handle it. We can handle those emotions that come up, you know, even emotions that come up when we're doing trauma work or when we're doing the work on some painful past things, we can tolerate those because really sometimes what's gotten us into these um, difficulties in life is that we're seeking something to take the pain away. Way. I mean, I think that's, I think every listener out there can certainly relate to that. Mm-hmm. Or avoid the pain in the first place, right? Yeah, exactly. How do we develop our distress tolerance muscles? We really have to start by just even if we sit with, uh, you know, pain for a very brief time. So um, I'll, I'll use an eating disorder example. So, you know, say I'm working with someone who is describing urges to binge eat. And they really, they know it's connected to an emotion. So they might know, say, for instance, they have had a fight with a partner. Okay. So they've had this fight, they're feeling pretty emotional. And so their inclination is to use food to comfort. What I ask them to do is just to take that pause and, you know, we talk about a lot, this a lot in the program as well, you know, not to, not to just go right to what's going to distract ourselves, but instead to just pause and sit with it. Even if that pause is only for 30 seconds before they go and distract, either through using a healthy coping skill, preferably, or by engaging in the binging behavior, even if they have 30 seconds, that's a victory because maybe the next time they can sit with those emotions for a minute. And then you just, as you said, build up those muscles of being able to sit with pain. Um, Sometimes with clients that I work with, we'll actually practice this in the office. We might intentionally bring up a topic that's maybe a little bit challenging or a little bit difficult and just kind of sit with it together and breathe into it rather than needing to make it go away. Now, you mentioned dialectical behavioral therapy as being where this term comes from. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? And Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, DBT, and that's just one approach that I use. Um, DBT is was an approach developed by Marsha Linehan, who is a psychologist. She initially developed it for people with borderline personality disorder. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of uh, people I know have been almost mistakenly diagnosed with borderline personality disorder because a lot of times when you're in the midst of an active addiction, it looks a lot like borderline personality disorder. But that's kind of an aside. Really, uh, she developed a set of skills that people can use to tolerate emotions, to increase mindfulness, uh, so to kind of stay in the moment rather than you know going, going off and uh, doing a lot of future thinking. Um, it helps us with interpersonal skills. So there's a lot of wonderful strategies that go, that are part of dialectical behavior therapy. Um, DBT is really well suited though for people who are struggling with addiction because it teaches us those very ways that we can begin to cope with difficult emotions. Uh, so for those of us who don't know 
actually how to distract in a healthy way. It can teach us healthy distraction. It can teach us skills like the one I just described, which is riding a wave of emotions as those emotions come up. So there's lots of wonderful kind of skills building that goes along with dialectical behavior therapy. Now, I actually had a treated borderline uh, guest uh, a couple years back on the show, and she talked about DBT as being um, a way for her to learn to live in the gray zone. So she described um, how she was feeling, and and I'm mentioning this because you say it looks a lot like <laughs> So I feel like this might be helpful for people to think about. So sometimes people mix up borderline personality disorder with bipolar disorder. Um, and it's, it, they're really, they're really different. They're really different. And so as I understand it, borderline personality disorder, one of the hallmarks of it is the inability to regulate emotions. So mm-hmm. when something sets you off, like you're really distressed and, um, and can't reel it in. And so what she described DBT as was a way to go from her black and white thinking, extreme black and white thinking into learning to live in the gray a little bit and tolerate the gray area in between. And so I love how you're describing it as well as being such a useful tool for just learning to sit and be curious about how we're feeling and instead of just feeling it, like stop and think about it and explore it a little bit. Right. So if you have an emotion that comes up, a difficult emotion, instead of just kind of going right into it or needing to numb it right away, you can just observe that emotion come in. What does it feel like? Um, does it, where does it, where do you feel it in your body? how does it feel in that part of your body? So I know for me, if I get like really upset or really angry, I might feel it in my face and my jaw clenching. It feels like a tightness. And so I know for myself, when I feel those physical sensations, what that means, that means maybe I'm getting a little angry or or pretty frustrated. And so I learned to make those connections. And with DBT, you're observing and describing emotions rather than needing to kind of be swept away by them. But um, I also love the, the connection to black and white thinking because how many of us at times in our lives have just looked at situations without those grays in just really black and white ways. Um, the other thing that I want to make sure that I mention about um the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder is it is highly, highly connected to trauma. And so a lot of times what happens is when a person goes through a trauma, they are constantly in a fight flight mode. So they're in that fight flight and so they are very dysregulated. So they're either in fight mode, they're in flight mode, or they're in freeze mode. And so there are no gray areas. They can't stay in that middle ground of being in the comfort zone. And when they're out of that you know, comfort zone, so to speak, and they're in fight or flight, that might be when there's more of that tendency to pick up a drink, to you know, turn to food, or to binge and purge. So, you know, there are some really good interconnections when you look at it to trauma. So I think that's, that's really help could be helpful for listeners as well. So two questions about that. First of all, 
can we learn to, to change our triggers then or to reduce the things that trigger us into that fight or flight state? So I'll give you an example. I do the books for our company and I hate it and I'm not that good at it. <laughs> it's accounting. I'm a writer. <laughs> so when my husband says to me, hey, uh, you know, did you pay this bill or, you know, where's the report on that? I literally start to sweat and I go into a panic and I get very snippy with him because I, I have an overreaction to it because I feel mortally threatened. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, I'm embarrassed telling you this. And for the first few times it happened, we both looked at each other like, what is going on here? Because as a person in recovery, I was pretty used to going through that process of stepping back and being curious about what's going on in my body. And I learned to say to him, I don't know what just happened, but the question you asked me put me in an absolute panic. And I reacted badly. Um, and, and so it seemed to me that just saying that has done something, but I still can't seem to stop the effect that it has on my body. It's to me that things trigger us and we don't always know where it's coming from. How can we learn to preempt a trigger or to lessen the triggers in our life? I, that is such a good question. So I, I think the answer in some regards is it depends. So, <laughs> you know, in, you know, let's, let's look at it. Okay. So it's an example of, you know, a person who hates math. I, you know, I hate math myself, anything having to do with numbers, I completely, completely relate to that. And so I might know that when I have to sit down and balance my checkbook or something like that, you know, it is going to be a difficult time for me. So maybe prior, if I know that it's, a trigger. Prior to doing it, maybe I'll take a walk or I'll plan on a really nice walk afterwards or I'll do some meditating prior. So I can anticipate a trigger. And then what I can do is, you know, find a positive way to cope with it. So that's that's example number one. Now suppose I'm going to take the same example and I'm going to put in a traumatic foundation to it. Um, so suppose uh, my hatred of math came because when I was a child, I was humiliated in school um, because I didn't, I had a learning disability and the teacher didn't understand that. And I always felt like I was stupid and I didn't know what I was doing. And that was why I was having that, you know, very much body-based reaction of terror. So it's more of um, a trauma response. That would be something where my recommendation would be, you know, you, you can certainly address it the way that I just mentioned, but probably even more important would be working on the actual trauma itself. And one of the really successful ways that I've done that with people is uh, through EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, I don't know if you've had anyone uh, on your show discussing having been through that type of therapy or having done that. I, I've actually done that as a client as well as I'm certified to, um, you know, to do EMDR with people, but it is highly effective as a way of helping people to work through past traumas. It's been a long time since we've talked about it on this show and I understand it to be an incredibly powerful tool. So I'm going to ask you to walk us through what it is and how it works. And say again what the acronym EMDR stands for. 
Oh, sure. So um, EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And so it's... um. You know, it's it's funny because I'll describe it, and I think to some listeners it'll sound like, uh, you know, like woo-woo kind of stuff. It's actually uh, very much a recognized therapeutic technique in which we use some sort of stimulation to stimulate the brain bilaterally. Um, initially, the stimulation was done through a series of directed eye movements. So the therapist will take either a light bar, a pen, uh, even in their two fingers, and they'll move it in front of the person. The person will track it with their eyes. And that tracking movement back and forth, left and right, will actually stimulate the left and right hemisphere of the person's brain. That allows them to process through a trauma. So when a person goes through a trauma in their life, what winds up happening, it's almost like, um, you know, when I look at, when I have, I have a Mac, uh, when I save things, I have this awful habit of just kind of saving them all over my entire desktop. They're not necessarily neatly filed in a folder. So my husband laughs at me because when he sees my desktop, he says, where do you find anything? Um, that's the same thing with traumas. They're scattered in so many different places. They're, they're not one organized whole. And so what that allows us to do, the directed eye movements or stimulation by using little tapping devices or through auditory tones, left and right, uh, hemisphere tones, what winds up happening is we can take all those files that are kind of scattered and put them neatly in a folder that makes it a lot easier to tolerate and process. So it's not as overwhelming anymore. It literally will bring down the intensity of the emotions that underlie underlying the trauma, but then also those emotions that are connected to urges to eat, urges to drink, urges to drug, it really helps to give you better control over all of those things. I've, I don't know if this is true or if I've made this up in my brain, but is it somehow <laughs> connected or does it come from the theory of the REM, REM movements that's happening in our sleep and how we're sort of processing our memories from the day when we sleep and we have REM movements, eye movements when we it's, sleep? It's a very, it's a very similar process. I don't, so originally, um, Francine Shapiro is the person who developed EMDR. The way that she noticed it wasn't, wasn't during sleep, but she was, you know, kind of taking a walk and she was working on working out something in her mind, something that was, you know, pretty traumatic for her. And she noticed that when she took a step, it was left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And she noticed that that movement actually helped helped her to process through it. And so that's actually how the technique was originally developed. Now it's been very, very well researched. Uh, even, you know, here in the States, the Veterans Administration um, actually will pay for EMDR for people who've come back from combat and things like that to really help with PTSD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, sort of moves it, moves it from being s- stuck in that um, part of your brain that wants to respond as if a tiger is walking towards you, maybe files it into long-term memory that you can revisit without going back into that kind of fear and just think of it right. as a memory, right? 
Right. Without that same degree of emotions attached to it. So that intensity. So if we come back to your example of doing the books, you know, if that behavior brought up such intense emotions for you, if we were able to process, you know, this hypothetical underlying trauma, what would happen is, you know, as you started to do the books, you wouldn't have that same intense emotional reaction. So is it important that we can remember and identify a trauma or is if it's pre-memory or we don't or we repressed it or something or as I said or if it isn't one specific thing how do you deal with that do you have to be able to name it in order to fix it or can you deal with it otherwise well, usually, even if you don't have the, if, if it's pre-verbal, like you're saying, although you may not have the memory of it, your body does, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So, um, so for me, you know, I don't remember being, I was two years old. I don't remember being in the car with my, with my mother watching, you know, this horrible trauma occur. I don't remember that, but my body remembers it. And my body responds with fear. My body responded with fear of things that made me feel unsafe. And one of my major triggers, and it sound, it's going to sound so unrelated, but I found it to be so related. I had this awful fear of heights. And I still have a little bit of one, although I've, I've done a lot to get past it. But it was, um, I know it'll, it'll, it might sound silly or maybe someone out there can relate to this, but I was having horrible panic attacks when I was taking escalators of all things because I kept feeling like I was unsafe and that I would fall. And this was actually just that body memory of being unsafe. And so when I was able to process just the the body memory, and as I was processing it, actual memories of the trauma did, some of them started to come up, not in a lot of detail, but in enough detail for me to be able to process through the trauma. And now, you know, I can get on an escalator without that same panic. Now, I might want to go to someplace like London where those escalators are like 20 stories high. But, you know, normal everyday escalators aren't a problem anymore. And, you know, most heights I'm okay with now. That is really fascinating. Um, Because even if you were trying to intellectualize your way through not being afraid, I'm guessing your body responded anyway. Exactly. And that's... And that's what happens, I feel like, to a lot of people who have eating disorders or who um, who use alcohols way to numb. It's really a body reaction that they're that they're trying to fix with that that way of coping. Um, you know, I have people really describe this to me like they, their heart starts racing or they're, you know, they're experiencing that dizziness or that numbness or that overwhelm feeling. And so they might use food as a way to bring down those PTSD symptoms. They don't have that language to put it together, perhaps until they come into treatment or they talk with someone else who's been through something similar. What is the word drunkorexia? What does that word mean? So it's such an interesting term, and I'm so glad that you asked that question because I think sometimes it it can be a word that we confuse with uh, these interconnections between drinking and eating disorders. It's not exactly that. Um, So what Drunkorexia is, uh, I say it a lot in connection with people of college age, and oftentimes we'll see that people will restrict their food intake 
and and in order to engage in binge drinking behavior. Um, So what they're trying to do is they're trying to restrict calories because alcohol itself has a lot of calories. And so if they restrict food enough and restrict enough calories for food, they they can go and binge drink without weight gain. So I wanted, I'm glad you asked because I wanted to make sure that we covered that term. It's a little bit different than what we've been talking about, but it's also a commonly confused term. So I wanted to be sure that people understood what it meant when they heard it. And I'm guessing that uh, when a person does this, and I I think I have heard, you know, women that are a little older talk about this as well, because as they drink more than they're worried about the calories. And so it may not be for the reason of partying or, you know, I know I'm going to go have fun. It might be, well, I know that now my <laughs> my typical <laughs> daily drinking pattern includes four glasses of wine, therefore I need to skip lunch, you know, um, or the pattern of trying to exercise it off. Like I, if I had a dime for every person that contacted me and said, you know, I thought I was doing okay with my drinking because I could still do a 10K run every morning before work. And, you know, I was what they're really trying to do is, is compensate for the drinking. So I feel like that pattern sort of has an echo into later adulthood as well that seems to morph a little as it goes on. Yeah, no, it, it definitely can. You're absolutely right. Um, I have seen that pattern in all ages. Um, it's you know, the ways that we compensate, and it's pretty remarkable when you think about it, the things that we learn, but, you know, compensating through restrictive eating, compensating through vomiting, compensating through, um, you know, compulsive exercising. And then I'll also throw in, because I want to make sure that we mention it, is compensating through laxative abuse, because that's fairly common. And I see that for some women as well. I have been there myself, as a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. and did a lot of damage to my body in the process. And it took a long time to heal from that. It, it does. And your body becomes really dependent on laxatives the same way it does on other things. And it does take a very long time. And sometimes sometimes you do need to be in the hospital in order to successfully come off of laxatives if you've been using it at a very high rate for a long time. Well, let's talk about treatment. What type of treatments are most effective for eating disorders and particularly when they are present together? With alcohol yeah. Disorder? So, so we've already kind of said what, you know, what ideal treatment would look like, uh, but it is really difficult to find, you know, either a treatment center or sometimes even treatment providers who can work with both the alcohol as well as the eating disorder. Um, you know, for, so let me, let me just start by saying the, you know, the underlying um, support that I like to use for women who come to me, if they're open to it, are 12-step groups, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, especially women's meetings. Uh, I feel like the idea, the discussion of eating disorders, if a person broaches that and brings that up, they can find a lot of support within AA groups of other women who've been there and who've gotten help for eating disorders. So, at times, um, 
you know, that isn't the case, but there are many times where they can. Uh, OA is another support, although there are some OA groups that might not be, might not be for everybody. Overeaters Anonymous, um, and they do work with all kinds of eating disorders. What sometimes we find with Overeaters Anonymous is that people prefer to get a different step sponsor and a different food sponsor if they have an eating disorder. They want to make sure that they have a food sponsor who actually understands eating disorders. Um, so, you know, so 12-step can be a really important source of support. Um, outpatient therapy, uh, especially with someone who understands the interconnection between the addictions, is very helpful. Uh, DBT, EMDR, as we've already mentioned, um, definitely the trauma work. If it's, you know, for anybody who comes in who has any sort of traumatic past, it's really important to work through those traumas, developing better ways to cope. And then last but not least, being able to sit with feelings as they arise. Is it um, important or helpful to have inpatient treatment? So when we talk about outpatient versus inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment typically means you're, you're staying at home, but you're going to a program during the day and staying at home at night. Inpatient is when you're actually in care and you're there for a number of weeks, days, weeks, um, or longer. Um, are there, are there good programs for that as well? And, and there's also, I'll add one more, one more level of care that's related to, to, um, not outpatient to inpatient, which is residential treatment. Um, so, Usually people who choose to go for inpatient treatment, we would always want that when there's a medically complicated case. So if someone has some sort of a medical issue in addition, say to the eating disorder. So I was actually just uh, working with someone who had a very serious eating disorder who was pregnant and needed to go, really needed to go for inpatient treatment because there were potential medical complications with that. Um, So inpatient treatment, if there's medical complications, if there is the need to... to detox from something like laxatives, that would be a preference. Um, if a person is a very, if they're very weight compromised, so if their BMI is very low and they might have medical symptoms based on low weight, an inpatient treatment facility or a residential treatment option might be best. Now, if a person is able to you know, come in and they don't have those same medical complications, then maybe outpatient treatment, which would be, as you said, you know, they could go to a program or they could even work with an outpatient therapist a few times a week or, you know, at some point even once a week, that might be a possibility. So it really depends on the severity of symptoms based on the recommendation of level of care. You know, I remember that one of my greatest fears in, in, taking charge of the whole eating thing. (laughs) I don't even know what to call it. We'll call it a disorder, but to me it was the eating thing, Um, was that I was really fearful of gaining weight. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was, I had to get to a point where I was like, I couldn't live with, with the, um, the pattern that I had created for myself and the discomfort became greater than my fear of gaining weight or 
because it was so tied to perfectionism. And I think because there's some body dysmorphia there as well. So is that something that has to be overcome or addressed often before people are willing to seek treatment? All the time. <laughs> it's, But it is the unmanageability that really, really makes them want to do that. Um, you know, what I, what I tell people is try to, try to work with a program or a provider that'll help you to take baby steps. So a person is not going to come into treatment and then the first, uh, first appointment be told you need to gain X amount of pounds. Um, we can't really even prescribe that because each person's body is very different, but Usually people do want better control over the behaviors themselves. And so it's a process of learning to trust the body again and learning to trust that when we can recognize our body's hunger cues and our body's fullness cues, our weight will follow, our weight will settle into where it needs to be. Um, So, you know, getting away from that weight gain or weight loss mentality to a health mentality Mm. that you don't have to live with these symptoms for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes, I think that goes for alcohol as well. I, I could see that being advice that goes for both of those things at once. Oh yeah. Which is, Most definitely. <laughs> it, yeah. Which is good. A burden to, to manage, uh, alcohol use disorder. It becomes a management issue and mm-hmm. the idea of being free of that management issue is very appealing to me at the time. And I'm, uh, it's really continues to be my greatest gratitude and joy in recovery is that I'm not, my day does not revolve around that anymore. And I don't feel the shame of having a secret. Um, what's your, what is it, your advice for women that are struggling with both alcohol and eating disorders in tandem? I think the biggest thing that I can say to them is get help. There is hope you can heal from this. I have seen so many men and women through the years come in just feeling like they really are at that rock bottom. And, you know, through some hard work on their part and through learning to trust again, through learning to feel again and tolerate emotions, they have gotten better. So reach out to supports and get support for what you're struggling with. Now, I have this lovely app on my phone called Insight Timer, which is a meditation Mm -hmm. app. And I was thrilled to find out that you are on Insight Timer. I can listen to you providing guided meditations (laughs) on Insight Timer. Can you talk about that and also where people can find you about your website and other ways that they can connect with you? Oh yeah, absolutely. So Insight Timer is uh, one of you know certainly just one of the gigs that I do. Um, I uh, my website is uh, you know hopefully you'll find it a little bit catchy. It's talktogrow.com. and so you know just look me up at talktogrow.com. Um, you know I'm out there. I am doing a lot of writing, as you said. I write on Elephant Journal. I write for Tiny Buddha. I just you know really try to get these messages out there. A lot of my messages are about things like healing shame, doing inner child work. So all those things that are super helpful in recovery. Um, The other thing that I really enjoy doing is, uh, you know, find me on Instagram at at Dr. Heidi Dalzell. 
And find me on Facebook. Um, on Facebook for women who are, you know, I it's called I have I run a Facebook group called Eating Disorders at Midlife. Um, basically, that definition of midlife in my book is pretty loose. Uh, what I'm looking for are just a place where adult women can gather and get help and support. Um, so if you're on Facebook and you'd like some support with the eating disorder, and there are a lot of people on the group who are struggling also or are in recovery from alcohol, um, look for eating disorders at midlife. So those are just some of the ways to find me. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really have loved talking with you and I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. I know that it makes a big difference and I know that a lot of our listeners can relate to the things we talked about today. So thanks for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Jean. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, you can reach Dr. Heidi Delzell at the places she mentioned, and I will also be sure to put her contact information in our show notes. So if you just scroll down on your app or underneath wherever you're listening to this, you will see links there as well. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame Strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see old I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free Just want to